It's the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP. Now, here's Todd. All right, welcome uh, once again to the program. Going to spend the hour today talking with Clallam County Prosecuting Attorney uh, Mark Nichols. Uh, Mark, good to have you back. Thanks for coming in. Always a pleasure as, to be here. Thank you, always. Todd. And we're going to kind of revisit a little bit of some things we've touched on in the past and maybe have a little bit more time to talk about uh, it because we usually, per the, per the, what it always happens every time. We get into a thing with 10 minutes left in the, in the show and we never can really get off and expand on it. So hopefully we won't run into that problem today. So a little bit about sentencing today and we'll also talk about kind of what uh, drug possession laws may or may not be looking like heading down the road and how that affects the prosecutor's office. Both worthy worthy topics, and uh, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, referencing that in the past I at least have strayed into discussion of more perhaps esoteric or complex topics with simply not enough time to mm-hmm. really do a deeper dive. And so my hope today was that because Washington State is somewhat unique, surprise, surprise, that we spend a little bit of time talking with the listenership and providing some education regarding how Washington State approaches sentencing. Of course, everybody's familiar with the concept of people being sentenced for their crimes, either sent to jail on the one hand or prison on the other. But there's so much more that goes into it that's really known by a pretty small handful of people who practice criminal law in Washington State. Uh, The longer they've been at it, probably the more they've discovered that there are exceptions to the rule and then further exceptions Mm -hmm. to the exceptions to the rule when it comes to all things sentencing related. And so my goal today was just to talk about some of the basics of how we approach sentencing, uh, comparing Washington to some other states so that people understand that there's a difference in approach here, and then uh, providing a little bit uh, of explanation regarding where there's some discretion available to the prosecutor on the one hand, to the sentencing judge on the other, notwithstanding the other mechanical features of our state's sentencing laws. All right. With that said, I would imagine sometimes, because I'm I'm sure you hear this in your office, uh, somebody gets sentenced, people say, well, that's all they got. I mean, there's... And then that, you know, well, what did you do wrong? It's kind of maybe what comes at at prosecutors, uh, perhaps, uh, and maybe that's wrongly uh, approached. But I also think some of that may come from people who have lived in another state and don't know how uh, sentences are determined in this state. I think you're right. And uh, the criticism is, from my perspective, actually helpful to receive because it helps to inform the types of discussions that I think are value-added for for voters and constituents in Clallam County. And so without further ado, I I think I'll start from a 100,000-foot view level perspective and uh, simply state that there are two primary sentencing models available around the country. One is known as the indeterminate sentencing model, and this is a system of sentencing in which there's greater flexibility uh, in deciding what an individual sentence will be. Usually the sentence is given in the form of a range, say for example, 20 years to life. Uh, In that scenario, a person would have to serve at a minimum 20 years, but they may not wind up serving a full life sentence just depending upon how they behave in prison and what a parole board decides. And so again, that's indeterminate sentencing, so termed because there's an an indeterminate range. There's some some flexibility regarding Mm -hmm. how that's going to play out. That is to be contrasted with determinate sentencing, which is the other main model that's in practice. The phrase determinate sentencing means that an offender is sentenced to a specific amount of time 
in jail upon conviction as compared to a broader range. And so it's noteworthy that in, as at least as of 2019, I did some quick research this morning, uh, there were roughly 34 states which were using the indeterminate sentencing model, the 20 years to life mm-hmm. model, for example. The remaining minority uh, group of states, including Washington, used determinate sentencing. And so that's the first takeaway for the listenership uh, is that we are using the minority model, and it's one that uh, provides less flexibility to a judge when it comes time for sentencing. It also provides less flexibility to prosecutors with regards to right. their recommendations. You can only ask what uh, is in the grid, so to speak, uh, and, and, and hope for that. Although we'll get into some things. There is a little nuance, depending on what happens with the crime and who the victims are and some things like that. How did how did the two develop? Because I think most people are familiar with what the majority use, the uh, indeterminate sentencing model. How did we get to a determinate sentencing? What is the history of that? Todd, that is a, a fantastic question. And uh, I would start by noting that prior to the 1980s, Washington state, like the majority of states, employed an indeterminate sentencing model. Uh, what happened was that there were similarly situated people around the state, sometimes in the same county or even in the same courtroom. Uh, and when I say similarly situated, I mean, for example, you may have an individual who had no prior criminal history. They were uh, charged with and pled guilty to a residential burglary. One individual would be sentenced to uh 10 years, um, 10 to 20 years in prison, Mm -hmm. and the other was getting six months. And so that disparity or that inequity in treatment is something that proved to be contentious. It was difficult to to defend from a public policy perspective. And so just about uh, 1980, maybe 1981 or so, the state legislature enacted the Sentencing Reform Act, which established the Sentencing Guidelines Commission uh, and directed it to recommend to the legislature a determinant sentencing model for adult felons. And that's the other thing that's important to note for purposes of our discussion today is that most of what I'm speaking to applies uh, to adults who are convicted of felony-level offenses, right. not misdemeanor right. and gross misdemeanors, with but a few exceptions. Yeah, and, and rolling back, too, I mean, uh, and I last time we had you on, I jokingly said, you know, you had what people would term the, the hanging judge, so to speak. So sometimes the same same crime would go before one judge and would get a different sentence than another judge. And it just kind of just happened to be a bit of the whim of the day almost. Uh, people could argue that. And, and they did argue that, in yeah. fact. I've spoken to some prosecutors who are now retired, but who were, uh, who were in practice at the time as yeah, You'd want certain judges in some cases. I mean, depending on it, you'd probably try to you know lobby to get that sentencing in front of a certain uh, judge just Ab- by reputation. Absolutely. And yeah. there, are, there are some ethical problems with that is what right. I will say. But uh, that whole concept of judge shopping, forum shopping alike... Uh, that was something that was fairly rampant, and it was concerning again. The The goal of the new sentencing guideline system that the legislature promulgated uh, back in the 1980s is to ensure that offenders who commit similar crimes and have similar criminal histories receive roughly equivalent sentences. Right. And so, again, we're, we're coming back to this theme or this concept of wanting to have equality, uh, consistency in sentencing, because that's better from a policy level perspective generally. And so that was the uh, the rationale behind converting 
uh, from indeterminate to determinate sentencing as a state. Okay, so that happens in the 80s. And now, you know, what that does do is it really kind of puts sentencing into the hands of the legislature. It does. And the legislature, uh, uh, d- through direction provided to the, uh, the Sentencing Guidelines Commission, has uh, taken action that has resulted in the creation, if we fast forward to right. today, uh, to what we refer to as the grid. Uh, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges speak about this uh, every time somebody is sentenced. And when I, when I speak in terms of the grid, I am literally referring to a grid with an X and Y axis, not dissimilar from what folks may remember from high school algebra or algebra trig, for example. Along one axis exists the seriousness level of an offense, and that can range anywhere from one being the least serious offense to 15, which is the most serious. And so, uh, and we should point out those are defined. Uh, it's not a prosecutor doesn't get to decide that's a two or that's a five. Uh, the charge fits a certain number. Exactly. Right. That, that's yeah. my remark earlier about much of this being very mechanical or right. almost mathematical right. in some respects. And so an example of a less serious offense would be something like forgery. An example of uh, an extremely serious uh, offense, in fact, the most serious would be murder. Mm-hmm. And then along the other axis, again, we have a vertical and a horizontal axis uh, on this grid Uh, there exists an offender's uh, score, and their criminal history score uh, can rank anywhere from zero, meaning they have no prior felonies that count towards their score, all the way up to nine. Uh, Nine plus is reserved for people who have nine or more felony convictions. It doesn't get any higher than that. that, I mean, even though you might have 100 convictions, you're going to be just like a guy with nine. Exactly. You'll just be a nine-plus offender. And so... Uh, If somebody is charged with an offense, uh, we look at the seriousness level. Uh, We also take into account what their offender score is. Uh, Where the two meet on the grid, there is a range, a sentencing range, and usually the prosecutor makes a recommendation within that range. The defense attorney makes a separate recommendation within that range. The judge exercises their discretion and imposes a sentence somewhere within that circumscribed range. Mm -hmm. There are some exceptions, however. And so uh, one of the areas in which there's the ability for the prosecutor to exercise discretion in a way that can be impactful when it comes time for sentencing is in relation to uh, charging the existence of aggravators. And so aggravators are things that exist by statute conditions, as it were. And if they're present in relation to the commission of a crime, you can charge that aggravator and it can provide the sentencing judge with the ability to depart upward and impose more prison time. And so a good example of an aggravator, a statutory aggregator, aggravator would be that somebody uh, committed a murder with uh, deliberate cruelty. Prior to taking another life, they purposefully tortured the individual. That would be a murder uh, committed with deliberate cruelty as an aggravator. If we plead that, if we prove that at the time of sentencing, the judge has the ability to make an upward departure from the otherwise circumscribed range. Similarly, on balance, there exist what are called mitigators. Unlike aggravators, which need to exist uh, and be defined by statute, uh, 
mitigating circumstances can simply be found by the sentencing judge. They don't have to point to a statute. They can say, for example, uh, the court having heard the testimony, having sat through the trial, having listened to the verdict and followed this case, believes that mental health, short of insanity, played a significant role in relation to the commission of the crime and that's warranting of a downward departure. So the court's going to find this is a right. mitigating circumstance, and we're actually going to go down from the otherwise circumscribed sentencing range in setting a sentence. In an aggravator or a mitigator, can you jump out of the box? Uh, you know, if there's a heinous thing, does it go? Because you talk about the, the box, I'm talking about kind of the range of what the typical sentence was. You've got an aggravator, maybe multiple aggravators. Can how, how much of a jump can you make in that sentencing guideline? Uh, fairly significant and so and we uh, from time to time you may you may hear about cases that resolve through Clallam County Superior Court which is where adult felony cases are heard uh, in which somebody is sentenced to a fairly fairly substantial period of time and it's not at all uncommon that the reason for which that's occurring is because we in the prosecutor's office opted purposefully to charge and pursue aggravators Mm -hmm conditions that we believe existed in relation to the perpetration of the crime. And so uh, deliberate... Uh, uh, the cruelty one cruelty is, is a good one. example. Yeah. Uh, position of trust, right. uh, unfortunately. That's, that happens quite a, a lot, doesn't it? We do. With, yeah. uh, with uh, crimes involving sexual assault, it's not at all uncommon yeah. that, uh, unfortunately, the perpetrator is known to the survivor, uh, oftentimes within the family or as a close family friend, uh, or another person who occupies a position of trust. And the the legislature finds that particularly disturbing and so has allowed for mm-hmm. that aggravator to be pursued. Uh, another exception to the general rule involves that uh, when we speak about policy-level directions coming from the legislature, Crimes involving firearms, um, they get treated differently. And and how is that, uh, and this is another, I think, educational piece for the listenership, uh, sentences can be either consecutive or concurrent. And so if a defendant serves their sentence consecutively, they're required to serve time for each separate offense they commit. So if they get offense A, 10 years, offense B, 10 years, you've got to go 10 Plus another 10. Plus exactly. Another 10. They serve yeah. their sentences back to back. Right. So for each crime, you do the time. And again, that's under the consecutive sentencing model. Uh, on balance, there's also uh, concurrent sentencing. A concurrent sentence means a defendant serves all their sentence at the same time or concurrently. Uh, Washington notably uses the concurrent mm-hmm. sentencing model, however, with some exceptions. And so a good example of an exception involves a circumstance where maybe you have a felon who steals a firearm. By virtue of the fact that there's a firearm involved in the offense, if they steal two separate firearms, even though Washington State operates under a concurrent sentencing model, they're going to have to serve the sentences for those two separate counts consecutively. And that's because Mm -hmm. the legislature really wanted to drop the hammer on folks who are using firearms firearms in the commission of felony offenses. And so we still have that tool available to us. Which, how often is that? Uh, I, you know, just me being the layperson here, I'm I'm assuming probably a lot of these more violent crimes are going to involve a firearm. They are. And uh, we see uh, here in Clallam County quite a bit of firearm theft occurring. Uh, either out of vehicles, unfortunately, which are oftentimes left unlocked and unlocked. Mm-hmm. And so just a, a warning to the listenership, 
please lock your vehicle, especially if you have a firearm in there. Better yet, don't store a firearm in your vehicle. (laughs) Uh, Or if you do it, do it in a way where it's secure and somebody can't remove it. Uh, But we see an awful lot of firearms being stolen. Reason being, they are portable. Um, The serial numbers can be removed. They are tradable on the black market for drugs, for cash, you name it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And unfortunately, they are used uh, to perpetrate subsequent crimes. And so we... We take firearm theft and firearm-related crimes very seriously. Uh, we will charge multiple counts and pursue driving a person's sentencing range up significantly uh, as a means through which to punish them and also remove them from society given the conduct that they've chosen to engage in. Um, the um, mitigate, uh, I should say not mitigated, but do the do, do defense attorneys ask for mitigating circumstances with the judge or is that just on the judge? Uh, much like, you know, you can do the aggravators as, as, as far as your recommendations. Does the defense then get a chance to give mitigators? Yes. The, the defense in the, in the performance of their job, and again, we, we have a criminal justice system that is uh, adversarial in nature. That doesn't mean it's uncivilized. It just means that you've got prosecutors who exist and are circumscribed to perform a particular function within the system. And on the other side of the equation, you've got defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. And the system really only works well when you have competent prosecutors on the one hand and competent defense attorneys on the other. And yes, in response to your question, defense attorneys will not hesitate to, if they believe there's a mitigating circumstance, either engage the prosecutor's office in a discussion of that usually early on. And sometimes that can result in a, a reduction of charges in the form of a plea or, a, or an amendment otherwise. Um, and other times they'll they'll make their case to the judge and um, they'll do everything they mm-hmm. can to inform the judge regarding facts that they believe are relevant and worthy of consideration. What the judge does with them is out of our control. Does this type of sentencing, does it make the job for a prosecutor easier or not? Uh, you know, if you if you take the whole of this thing we've looked at both models and all of that uh, what, what, what do you come down now granted in in washington we're on 40 years of this kind of way of doing it but i you know admittedly i have not practiced as a prosecutor in a state under an indeterminate sentencing yeah. model so i don't have that personal experience under my belt i have been told when i've gone to training say through the national district attorneys association and i I speak with counterparts from other states that use indeterminate sentencing that what we have is much more burdensome. Uh, It's much more minutia-focused and restrictive. And so, uh, frankly, at times, just correctly calculating an individual's offender score can be a challenge Mm -hmm. in and of itself in our state. Uh, And then when it comes to treatment of what the range is, whether there's an aggravator or a mitigator, uh, whether there's what we call the same course of conduct that comes into play, and maybe I'll talk a, for a brief moment sure. about that. Um, <laughs> when we speak in terms of same criminal conduct, uh, I would I would give you an example of a circumstance where maybe a defendant perpetrates a crime against the same victim at the same time and place with the same intent. The practical result of that is that we can't score their criminal conduct separately. And so if somebody somebody steals from you, Todd, six of your credit cards okay. break into your house. They steal six separate credit cards all in one event. Um, you're the same victim. This is all occurring at essentially the same time during the same break-in with the same intent to remove those cards and defraud you of them, to steal them. 
uh, we may be able to charge that person with six, six separate indiv- okay. individual crimes, one for each stolen card. However, when it comes time for us to calculate offender score, those all count as one versus six separate mm. uh, felony convictions. And so uh, this concept of same criminal conduct is another wrinkle that comes into play. Uh, and I think it does demonstrate why operating under a yeah. determinate sentencing model is a bit more complex and challenging. Which then leads me to my last question for you on this, and that is determining the offender's score. So you use that as an example. If that concurrent, I mean, that that's a one yes. for all six of those thefts, basically. Yes. I think a lot of people on the face of it would say, well, geez, you get that guy and you got six. You know, right. That's what you would think. That's what common sense would dictate. The other thing that oftentimes results in questions being asked from from citizens is uh, our circumstances where we have an individual who perhaps is well known to the criminal justice system through the district courts for Clallam County, either District Court one, which, of course, caters to Central and East Clallam County or District Court two out in Forks. The reality is that uh, with but a very few exceptions, a person can be convicted of, you know, say Mm -hmm. 16 to 20 misdemeanor offenses, but those don't count towards calculation of their offender score. And so it's the first felony conviction that is the one that really prompts us to start paying closer attention when it comes to calculation. And and misdemeanors, quite frankly, there are some that, uh, you know, are kind of impactful to people. I mean, there's some property crimes and some things that happen in it that are deemed a misdemeanor and don't go against when, and I think a lot of people go, well, that hurts me just like a felony would. Absolutely. Right. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I would go so far as to say that there are certain misdemeanor offenses that are more impactful than a number yeah. of felony level offenses. A good example would be something like a an assault for domestic violence conviction versus a forgery conviction. It's one thing to have somebody forge your signature and take a little bit of your money. Um, You know, that bruises Mm -hmm. our ego and it prompts us to double down on security measures and we may have to restore credit and that's a headache admittedly. But it's nothing like being on the receiving end of an intimate assault by a family member or household member at the same time. And so just because something's classed as a felony doesn't necessarily, contrary to uh, to policy direction, mean that it's more serious than a misdemeanor offense. One last question for you about this, and that has to do with um, uh, types of offenses. So as you get that score up, uh, is there any weight to the types of those you know felonies that have occurred that uh, run that score up? For example, you know, Class C felony, you know, as opposed to that— one is one, two is two, three is three. I mean, does it, it doesn't really matter. A felony is a felony. Is, is that what I understand? Exactly. Yes, yeah. it is. And, uh, and all of this explanation is something I wanted to provide really as a lead up to a, a question that I certainly ask myself and, and that we, we consider on a daily basis in your prosecutor's office, which is recognizing the constraints upon us under Washington's determinate sentencing system uh, what are we trying to achieve, and how do we best utilize the tools available to us to do that? And at times, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. There have been occasions where somebody stands charged with a fairly serious offense. We may make a strategic decision to amend the charge down, not because we don't think that the person did something very serious, but instead because we want to ensure that when they get out of prison, they're going to have community custody or supervision 
uh, in the community at large. And for some offenses, you don't have community custody available as a sentencing feature. For other crimes, you do. And so uh, ironically, what we'll do wow. on occasion yeah. is we'll make an amendment down uh, through a plea. The person pleads guilty. We know they get a little less prison time, but what they're going to make up for uh, more than make up for that is going to be uh, supervision in the community once they're released. So there's somebody to help them stay on straight and narrow mm-hmm. when they're back living amongst law-abiding citizens. And in other cases, uh, we'll know that if we're dealing with a particularly violent individual uh, who has not responded to rehabilitative efforts, uh, the place for that person is behind bars. And so what we will do is charge aggravators uh, as we see them available. We'll do everything we can to uh, create an environment conducive to having that person incarcerated, recognizing that that may be what's necessary to keep everybody else safe. All right. It's fascinating in good and bad ways, I think, in, in analyzing this. But thanks for the trip down the uh, Sentencing uh, Reform Act and what it means for Washingtonians. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, Sentencing Reform 101, 101. in Washington. Right. Uh, we're, we're not going to go to 201 today. Okay, very good. <laughs> Next show, perhaps. Yes. Uh, we'll take a break. We're going to come back. I want to come back and, uh, and, and move into uh, drug possession laws, kind of where things are at, where things might go next with uh, Clallam County Prosecuting Attorney Mark Nichols this afternoon. This is the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KOMP. Mark Nichols, the uh, prosecutor for Clallam County, my guest this uh, afternoon. We uh, spent a whole lot of time in what was uh, Washington Sentencing Reform Act 101. We will not bore you anymore into 201. Maybe next time we'll get into that. It's an interesting uh, conversation we were having about uh, actually totaling scores, which seems really trivial when we say things like that. You're talking about somebody being sentenced to prison, but... We'll just leave it at that. It, it is what it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, another thing that has been uh, certainly playing through things has been drug possession laws. We've talked about this in the past, where things are at, and perhaps how things might be changing or not changing. Of course, this goes back to now almost two years ago with the uh, ruling from the state Supreme Court that uh, essentially threw out simple possession in the state of Washington. Uh, you can have drugs on you and can't be arrested just for that. Correct. And so this is a very important topic, and it is one that made the headlines back in March of 2020. Uh, And in some respects, it's kind of fallen off the radar, which is very concerning to me as uh, one of the state's 39 elected prosecuting attorneys, because uh, drugs have such an impact on society in so many different ways. And so what I wanted to do today was make sure that this issue is brought back up, refresh the listenership's recollection of uh, the interesting journey that our state has traveled. And uh, to that end, I'll start by saying that back in 1971, the Washington State Legislature adopted a law that criminalized the simple possession of controlled substances, otherwise known as drugs. And if you were found in possession of drugs, uh, what what has ha- what had happened in Clallam County from about 1971 up until about March of 2020 is that you would be arrested by law enforcement who would take the drugs from your person. They would book you into the county jail. You would be referred to the prosecutor's office, and you would be charged with a Class C felony offense for drug possession. Didn't matter if it was methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, uh, you name it. 
you're correct in that the Washington State Supreme Court, through the case of State versus Blake, uh, essentially invalidated our simple possession of drug statute, which had been on the books for about 50 years. And the reason they did that was because they they found for the first time that it contained no intent provision. Uh, previously, the appellate courts had found an implied intent, but the state Supreme Court opted not to do that this time. And so with that, the statute was deemed unconstitutional and overnight Uh, it became, strictly speaking, legal to possess drugs unless you were a juvenile. There were still some some opportunities there for the system to engage. Uh, Following several months of us as a state being in limbo, relative limbo, not having a drug possession law on the books, our legislature uh, went to work, uh, fashioned what I would characterize, just one person's opinion, as some bridge legislation. And that is the legislation that's currently in place today. And what it says is that the first time law enforcement around the state contacts an individual and they're found to be in possession of drugs, law enforcement has to refer them for evaluation and treatment. And this usually takes the form of a letter saying, this is to notify you that you've been found in possession of methamphetamine, Uh, Under Washington law, we encourage you to seek a drug evaluation and follow through with treatment recommendations. Some law enforcement agencies uh, remove the drugs from the stream of commerce. Uh, Others don't. In Seattle, they just leave the drugs in place with the person. Uh, Here, by and large, we remove them. Uh, So at least there's a win in removing them from... So you're allowed to do that. The ruling did not say you had to. uh, You could still confiscate because they're considered an illegal substance. Yes. Just it's the possession part of that that you can't make an arrest on. Yes, exactly. And so, and and of course, these drugs are still illegal under federal law. So mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, so there's actionable... another nuance if you want to get into that, but go ahead. <laughs> yes. And so they're, they're still contraband. Uh, but in some jurisdictions, they, uh, not only have they, have they cooperated in the decriminalization effort, but they, they no longer remove drugs from people within communities. Mm-hmm. They just leave them in place. And, um, I'm, I'm pleased that here on the peninsula, at least we're removing them from the stream of commerce in fits and starts, which is, I think, part of what needs to occur. Um, the second time law enforcement contacts that same individual somewhere around the state in possession of drugs, they are required for a second time to refer them for a drug evaluation and to follow through with treatment recommendations. And there's no, there's nobody monitoring whether the individual who is mm. contacted by law enforcement actually winds up following through and getting the evaluation and working through treatment or not. It's all on the honor system. It's not until the third time that same individual is contacted by a peace officer around the state that the officer is then technically within their right to arrest that person or make a referral to the county or city prosecutor for simple drug possession under this bridge legislation. When that happens, the prosecutor is encouraged but not recommend or not required to, for a third time, refer that person for evaluation and treatment. Uh, But we don't have to. We have the ability, if we want to go ahead and charge them uh, in a criminal court, but it's not with a felony offense, as it could have been for, you know, 50 years or so. Instead, it's at a misdemeanor level, and it's an exhaustive time and resource-intensive trial event 
that would result in a non-scored going back, back to, to our, our first part. Yeah, our right. first part, yeah. our, a non-scored conviction. Um, and so it's it's really not a very law enforcement or prosecution or criminal justice friendly process that's been put in place. It is uh, bridge legislation that is temporary by design, and so it sunsets by mid twenty twenty three. By that time, our state legislature is going to need to revisit Washington State's mm-hmm. approach to simple possession of drugs. And this is where things get real interesting from my perspective, because the legislature has a range of options uh, that it could pursue. On the one hand, it could simply fix the statute that the state Supreme Court found was deficient by inserting the word knowingly. So a person found to be in knowing possession of drugs is subject to prosecution at a felony level. And I'll talk about why I personally think that's helpful in a moment. At the other end of the the scale, the or at the other end of the spectrum, rather, the legislature could pursue a model closer to that in Oregon, and they could legalize drugs uh, for recreational use. And this might take the form of new state law that says something like uh, drugs uh, in a in a de minimis personal use amount uh, shall not constitute a crime, and that amount might be. Maybe it's two grams, maybe it's three grams of, of methamphetamine or heroin or cocaine. Uh, there would be discretion to set that level. Um, that's another opportunity or av- option available to the legislature. They can also leave in place uh, legislation very similar to what we have right. at present, which is not very workable for law enforcement or prosecutors. The the first option, the one of restoring the, uh, the old statute by repairing it, building in the word knowingly so that a person has to be in knowing possession of drugs to get in trouble with the law, makes eminently good sense to me. And the reason I say that is because uh, I don't just want to be a hard nose when it comes to drugs. There's a lot of, there's a lot of downstream reasons for which this is really a, a superior and I think a strategic way to proceed for our state not the least of which involves the fact that so many system outcomes are only capable of being realized if you have this hammer in place in the form of the threat of a felony conviction. A good example would involve the fact that while for years and years and years we charged people in Clallam County with felony-level possession of controlled substance, we would also make available to them the opportunity to participate in the county's drug court program, which I'm a a strong supporter of. The reason it worked well is because the incentive to participate in drug court, which is a very arduous process over the course of a year or more, uh, was to avoid incurring that felony conviction on your record. Uh, Of course, when you have a felony conviction, you lose your firearm rights. There are other collateral consequences that are significant and assign quite quite a bit of value by folks so having that felony and you get a score and you get a point that's right (laughs) going back to the sentencing discussion so if you could charge someone with a class c felony count of being in possession of methamphetamine and then offer them drug court while i'm not present at the table i think that the discussion that occurred between the defendant and their defense attorney was along the lines of you know, we can go to trial and try to beat the rap. You can plead guilty and just have a felony on your record. Or uh, if you want to try to get out of this business of uh, living a life of addiction, 
you can go into the county's drug court program and they will set you up uh, for success in a way that the traditional system mm -hmm. is not going to be able to do. Yes, it'll take about a year of your life and significant effort, but what will come out of it is an increased opportunity for you to successfully enter a life of recovery. And so one of the things we've seen in the aftermath of the, the five decades long statute being struck down as unconstitutional is several drug courts around the state have folded. Others are, I think, headed in that direction because the incentive for people to enter into the program is simply not there yeah. anymore. The, the other point that I would make is that while the legislature uh, did create this bridge legislation that I've described that requires law enforcement to essentially refer people twice over for evaluation none, and treatment. None uh, of that has got the, the hammer with it, though. I mean, it's all <laughs> voluntary. It's not going to force anybody to go into any of this. Right. Yeah. The, the legislature simultaneously um, worked to direct uh, huge amounts of money into the evaluation and treatment disciplines around the state. And so I think that what that reflects is a, a policy shift within lawmakers believing that simply punishing people may be draconian and not very effective, although I think that's, a, that's an overstatement and it speaks to some level of misunderstanding given what I'm explaining. But I would make the argument that if the legislature really wants to maximize the value of the dollar that they've directed towards evaluation and treatment, if they want it to be uh, to, to really provide a force multiplier for it to make sure it's being put to its highest, best use, create the felony tag again for simple possession because most people who are addicted, I have been told by drug and alcohol and substance use disorder counselors, don't simply wake up on their own, decide to go obtain an evaluation and follow through mm -hmm. with treatment recommendations. It takes a community of support around you. It takes somebody monitoring and being willing to have difficult discussions and applying some pressure on you to keep you engaged in the recovery effort. Uh, that's the sort of environment that we see with the drug courts. And again, to get people into the drug courts, we've got to have some sort of hammer or incentivizing right. tool. And we're just we're, we're stuck without it right now. Well, and going back to law enforcement and their um, interactions with people under, under drug possession is bridge legislation right now. There's not even really a citation that's written in any of this. Uh, you know, the most you get is a letter, right? If right. I understand it correctly. Correct. And there's, uh, you know, the bridge legislation is fraught with with challenges for the, the law enforcement discipline, uh, not the least of which is the tracking component. And so if you think about it, mm -hmm. uh, people move around the state. We have things like automobiles and trains and planes and, and boats. Sure. And so it's not at all out of the realm of possibility that somebody could on a Monday be working, say, as a, as a contractor in Spokane, Washington, Maybe while they're there, they're contacted by law enforcement and they're found to be in possession of heroin. So they get the letter directing them to an evaluation uh, and treatment center. But maybe by Wednesday, they've made their way over to Whatcom County and they're working a separate job and they get contacted by law enforcement there. Unless there's some sort of tracking database, which 
does not exist at present because nobody, nobody, nobody cited. There's no official like in the court docket. There's no right. There's, if I understand this correct. Correct. There's there's no statewide database right. that that's been created partially because I think everybody in the, within the law enforcement world realizes that this is bridge legislation and we don't know if it's going to remain. So right. why put the effort behind building a tracking database? much less why expend the monies to mm-hmm. do it. And by the way, there was no legislative appropriation to law enforcement agencies to build a database. Uh, we here on the North Olympic Peninsula are really fortunate because uh, a number of our local law enforcement agencies have come up with, in essence, a way to track folks. And so if somebody's contacted in SQUIM in possession of drugs, PAPD is going to learn that, as is the Sheriff's Department. And so they can actually figure out how many contacts have mm-hmm. occurred at the hand of at least local law enforcement. And ostensibly, that would allow them to, on the third occasion, arrest a person, refer them for prosecution. However, even if they did that, what would be necessary is that we'd have to charge the case, which is easily enough done. But what goes into this is that we'd have to uh, send the drug off to the state tox lab, which is uh, unfortunately experiencing a a historical delay Mm -hmm. problem right now. It might be anywhere from six to nine months before we get our result back. Uh, The speedy trial clock is going to run faster than that delay is going to keep up with. And so we're going to find ourselves between a rock and a hard place with our ability to advance that prosecution. But even if we could somehow get a tox result back, proving that the substance confiscated is in fact drugs, if somebody wants to push their case to trial, then we're going to have to subpoena the men and women of law enforcement, pull them off the street. And again, this is all going towards what's a misdemeanor That's what I was going to say. This is a misdemeanor, right? Yeah. And at a certain point, there's a law of diminishing returns when you start considering is this worth our time? Not that it's not important, but in the grand scheme of priorities, is it more important for us to keep the men and women of law enforcement on the streets able to respond to those 911 calls or have them sitting in a courtroom waiting to testify in relation to a misdemeanor proceeding, which is costing the taxpayers huge amounts of money to mount, all for a non-scorable offense? All right, we've got one minute. What do you think the chances of st- of a change getting knowingly put in uh, as you know, what you would like to see happen? What would you, how would you rate it heading into this legislative session? Because something's going to have to come out of this upcoming session. Yes, I uh, I have an uneasy feeling that this state is going to go the other direction and mm-hmm. follow and try to follow in the footsteps of, say, for example, our neighboring state of Oregon to the south, or. Uh, simply leave in place the current model uh, at an unfunded level, which leaves us exactly nowhere when it comes to to drugs in our communities. And the problem with this is that uh, we have known for years that there's a nexus between folks who are using drugs and property crime. We've talked about this ad nauseum mm-hmm. before, but the long story short, um, you use drugs, you're addicted, you make bad decisions, you lose your job, but you don't lose your habit, and then you need to find a way to fund it. And so oftentimes we see people engaging in property crime offenses, stealing property, selling the property they steal to get money to buy and fuel their drug habit. We're also seeing uh, not just an increase in certain types of property crime, but just a general degree of lawlessness, including an uptick in violent crime, which is much more concerning Uh, to me and I think our communities uh, if you contemplate what goes into that. 
All right. Well, certainly I'll have a few candidates coming on in the next uh, coming weeks. Uh, we may ask them what they think about this type of legislation. I'd be very curious to see where it lands. We at least will know what the locals think. Uh, knowledge <laughs> is power. And I think it's a very important point for folks yeah. uh, to pay attention to. Don't assume somebody else is shepherding the conversation. Um, talk to your prosecutor, your sheriff. Most importantly, speak to your state representatives and your legislature uh, it's pretty important that we get this right uh, for the future of our state, not to sound too fatalistic. But yep. uh, we're, uh, we're facing I, a crossroads. Yeah, we are. That, I think you illustrated that well. Mark, always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you, Todd. All right. We'll uh, do it again in another uh, few weeks. That's Mark Nichols, prosecutor for Clallam County, on the show this afternoon.